Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror, film, and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls, and your podcast host. This season so far, we've been tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema, and in each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie or two. With only a couple of episodes left to go, we are now going to be diving deep into some contemporary horror films. And today, after some alien murder doll and hybrid creature action, we go back to a classic with zombies. We're going to be diving deep into the 2016 British post-apocalyptic horror, The Girl with All the Gifts. Starring Glenn Close, Gemma Artenton, and child actor Senia Nanua, who gives a stunning lead performance as Melanie, one of the several children immune to a mutated fungal disease that has eradicated free will and turned the rest of humanity into cannibalistic zombies. I'm joined in this episode by film writer Leila Latif to discuss the film, its themes, and the very upsetting idea of zombie babies eating their way out of the womb. As always, our conversation will contain spoilers from the very beginning, so if you're not familiar with the story of the film or the book that it's based on, consider this your spoiler warning. Layla, welcome back. How are you? I am very well, thank you. In the midst of all the London Film Festival madness. Yes. But... I always forget just how mad it gets. And then it comes around and I am exhausted. Yeah, this is actually my first one as like with my proper press pass. Mm. In the previous years, I've just kind of like gone along to the screenings. Let's, uh, let's get to zombies. Yay. Rise and shine, come on up you get. Transit. Hello, Dr. Coldwell. Hello, Melanie. Morning, class. Good morning, Mr. Once upon a time, there was a woman, the most beautiful and amazing woman in all the world. No, you just touched her. Watch. No, please don't do that. They're only children. Stop it! One day, she was attacked by a monster. But then a girl came running up and killed it. And the woman said, Melanie! You are my special girl, and I'll never let you go. She saved me, and you're still afraid of her? Yeah, and you should be too. I am producing a vaccine, and she is the main ingredient. What am I? hope that's what you are so we're gonna be talking all about the girl with all the gifts here and uh you when we were emailing before recording you mentioned that this was one of the films that you love so to kick off 
what is your relationship with the film and do you still love it or do you remember what you what you thought of it when it first came out so i mean it's not a perfect film but it is a film that i love um i think for context you, to kind of appreciate this film you have to remember what 2016 when it came out or uh, came out was like mm -hmm. um we were so oversaturated with zombies at that time I actually went on Wikipedia and did a count. And between 2010 and 2016, 123 zombie films came out. Uh, this was also the year that uh, The Walking Dead killed Glenn, which was basically the only decent thing left in The Walking Dead at that point. And the really terrible spin-off, Fear the Walking Dead, came out. Um, I hate The Walking Dead. I hate watched it for many years, but around this time <laughs> I gave up. Um, and so, like, really, the zombie all the zombie tropes all of the you know zombie mm -hmm. uh, makeup and presence and mm -hmm. satire was so overdone at this point so when girl with all the gifts came along um it really stood out and breathed mm -hmm. new life into a genre that i absolutely love but i felt at this point had been well not to create you know be too on the nose but had been beaten to death <laughs> I appreciate that so much. But okay, that's that's actually really fascinating. So what made it stand out for you at that time when zombies were everywhere and kind of done to death and also just consistently declining in quality? I think it's very fair to say. Yeah, um, well, for me, I, you know, I really love those old Romero films. I love and I and I love horror that has the satirical edge to it. Mm. And like zombies don't necessarily have to be political but they're definitely permitted to be and when you kind of see a film and you see the potential about like oh wow this could be a commentary on you know uh, on pandemics or this could be a co commentary on consumerism or you, this could be a commentary on kind of immigration like all of these different things but at this time it was like at the, we instead we were getting like just the most deadening boring stuff from the walking dead who just had this relentless one message about like oh but what if humans are the real monsters and they're like it's been six years have a second idea <laughs> and then you know you had some terrible stuff coming out like do you remember warm bodies i do uh the zom rom-com that was yeah. all also a trend for a minute and a half yeah and it, was, <laughs> it was bad and also, they said that they invented the zombie rom-com, which is nonsense, because Shaun of the Dead was a zombie rom-com. Yes. And it is excellent. And there was Very also excellent. Life After Beth. I actually didn't mind Life After Beth. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it, mainly because I love Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. And I think there was another one with Anton Nielchen as well. Oh, R.I.P. Yes. Something about my dead ex-girlfriend, something naff like that. Even like something like Life After Beth wasn't as good as it should have been hmm. like when you hear the kind of premise of it and um you know and the cast you you know we really should have been like an excellent film and it was fine i mean and like you know if you come into something with such goodwill as i'm sure hmm. like both of us did like liking horror films and liking the cast and you know loving aubrey plaza like you know it still wasn't amazing no, I mean, to be honest, aside from Shaun of the Dead, which you mentioned, I don't think any of the zombie rom-coms are actually anywhere close to amazing. No, I mean, would you consider Cabin in the Woods a zombie com Kind of. 
Yeah, never really thought of it as a rom com either. Or no, kind not of as a rom com, strictly... just a com. Yeah. Just a, <laughs> a horror com rather yeah. than a, a zombie specific one because they've got a lot of different monsters. Yeah, I love that film. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, what did you make of Girl with All the Gifts then with uh, at that time and when you've revisited it? Um, yeah, I just I thought I thought it was great. I think um, you know, obviously, it has this like central image which they really like keep coming back to mm. in the film, and isn't so all of the marketing of this like beautiful young girl with this Hannibal Lecter mask, and that mm. had like so much. It was so striking at the time, but like I couldn't help but like just be like, yes, I am super into this. Mm-hmm. I'm on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think what it kind of said as a film, and it had such a great ending and a great kind of set up um yeah I mean I don't think um it's a perfect film but I do think it's a very interesting film and in the context of 2016 where we had just been you know deadened by all of this low quality zombie content that we were getting it was you know a real uh, breath of fresh air so let's dig into the film properly Let's start by talking about the lead character, Melanie, who mm. is this girl, this image that they used over and over again. What do you think of her as the protagonist and also simultaneously as the menace of the film? Yeah, um, I mean, it's an extraordinary performance from a child actor. Mm. And actually recently watching The Haunting of Bly Manor has made <laughs> me appreciate how good this is because she could be because it's not an easy task that she has because she has to be um, very unsettling, but you have to really warm to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's kind of got this kind of duality to her this, with this like symbiosis of like the monstrous fungus and then her as a relatable young girl. Um, yeah, I mean, she's kind of fulfills a lot of that final girl trope in that she's, like, beautiful but kind of androgynous. And then she's very, like, um, resourceful, incredibly intelligent as well. Um, she's a brunette. What else? What else a final girl? <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't have an, adro- an androgynous name, though. No, that's a shame. They missed a trick there. There is something interesting about her being, like, also presented as sort of the one in in mm-hmm. air quotes here kind of as the one who is unlike everyone else of her kind who is unlike anything that the world has seen before i think at one point in a film um glenn close's character dr caldwell says that she you're you're not like anything that's ever existed before um so how do you think the play the film plays with this idea of her being the chosen one um yeah i mean that is kind of something that it doesn't establish that well does it because like we have all these like she doesn't seem to be that dissimilar to all of the other children beyond that she's more intelligent from them but then there are hints later on that there is something particular about her that Mm. will be the cure or the vaccine um to all of this so i don't i think that could have been better established Mm. whether she is kind of the first in like this next stage of man or she is um just like a very good version of that yes and what do you think then about the the way that the film establishes its its mythology um could have been better (laughs) (laughs) i 
Well, now, I think when I saw it at the time, mm -hmm. uh, I was like, great, I love all of these ideas and Glenn Close, the scientist, and doing all of this stuff. But this pandemic has made me a lot more skeptical about mass producing vaccines. So Glenn Close's plan <laughs> to kind of doesn't like convince as much when you watch it in, you know, in the midst of all this. Mm. It's, can we even watch a film without rethinking it entirely through the lens of a post-pandemic world or like a, a during pandemic world especially because this this whole zombie virus that mm. they that they establish it's sort of it's very earthbound like it's very natural like they call it a fungus that mm, yeah. attaches itself to the brain and makes people into zombies but they don't even use the z word they call them the hungries which i hated i have to say i mean it was just so infantilizing hungries yeah. but also are they living in an alternate world to us where zombies are not a reference perhaps but either way yeah no i thought hungries was a really odd choice but i mean there are two things in this film i intensely dislike okay and one of them was that them being called hungries <laughs> um, and the other thing was there's a scene quite early on where you don't really know why these children are being treated in this awful way, why they're being restrained, why all of the adults like have such contempt for them. And Paddy Constantine as a soldier to remind um, Gemma Arterson that these are monsters rubs his arm in front of one mm -hmm. and their teeth start chattering. Yep. And I don't know who came up with this teeth chattering as like a threatening thing, but it really, really doesn't work. Like it just, and I, and I've been trying to think why does it look so awful to me? And I think it's because it's not something that occurs in nature. Like when any like animal is in a moment of prey, no animal chatters its teeth. So it just looked really stupid. I think on screen. <laughs> that is such a good point. Like, oh baring your teeth, sure, but what the hell was that? Yeah, I think it's like... When it, was, it actually really kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, the zombies in Return of the Living Dead franchise in the sense where they're... Like, they're, very, they're a combination of a lot of different zombie tropes. Like, they move really mm -hmm. quickly and they're presented as being kind of supernaturally strong because they have to be restrained and stuff and you know these are kids still like they're sm they're small they're not that strong yeah. like the idea that um these adults and adult um military people would be physically scared of them is kind of in itself something that needs explanation because they're able to overpower them quite easily you think but it's this quickness and i guess this kind of almost it's not scary it's just unsettling to see someone do that like it's something so involuntary i guess yeah exactly um i mean i maybe it varies person to person but i just thought that maybe it was something that they kind of came upon for this film because they wanted to have something that distinguished their zombies but i think when you have something like this you can just trust the audience we know what zombies are we kind of basically know the rules of zombies destroy their head if they bite you you become one like you can just build on these far more interesting mm. ideas that you have and not worry about like giving your particular zombies a gimmick. And what do you think about then 
the way that the film updates those zombie roles, especially with the kids who are kind of like Blade as a half vampire and it has all the good bits of being a vampire and some of the bad bits that he can sort of control. The kids here are sort of zombies, but are able to control themselves to a degree or or speak, learn, understand what they're doing. Uh, yeah, I thought that was um, I thought that was really really interesting. Um, it kind of thing it reminded me of is um, did you ever read the I Am Legend um, graphic novel? Not a graphic novel. Um, I've read the Richard Matheson book. Oh well, I've only read the graphic novel. Look at you reading things without pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was a very popular lonely kid in my local library reading all the weird <laughs> Richard Matheson books. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's what it kind of reminded me of the most, though, that kind of mm. form of vampire, like this idea of like just like a next step of evolution. And sure, it's not like something that people in the current humanity can relate to, um, but it's kind of fully human in itself. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, what is it to be human? You've got free will, you've got the ability to empathize, uh, you've got uh, the ability to form relationships, and they have all of those things. Mm. So, just because they have other aspects that are kind of unappetizing to, well, I mean, they, they do eat people, but <laughs> doesn't make them like less deserving of being on the earth. <laughs> and what do you make of the way that? It's interesting that you bring up like the idea of them being human because that's the thing that they're not really treated as humans by this scientific organization where we first meet Melanie and the other kids and then afterwards when they kind of go on their um, expedition and they meet kind of rogue, feral, zombie kids. There's always the way that Melanie as their protagonist is always treated like there's always she's never really referred to as a human by almost anyone except except Helen uh Gemma Artenton's character there's a big arc I think with with Glenn Close's character about sort of recognizing that she is a human being and not a thing that they can use to experiment on and use to um cure this disease so how do you think kind of the the central story around questioning whether these creatures are humans or not, or whether they deserve to be treated as humans, pans out in the film. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, not only do we have um, kind of the human, the, the kind of fully human characters kind of doing, like, you know, abusive things towards these admittedly slightly monstrous children Hmm. but like in a way Melanie over the course of the film is learning to be selfish from the humans Hmm. like she's actually very very selfless when it comes to particularly you know she's always offering to do things to help them to kind of put herself in the firing line she's sacrificing things for Helen because she cares about her and over the course of the film she does fundamentally be like well yeah but why should I just do things for you and that's Mm. her journey of like literally just becoming having like a sense of self-preservation and and she learns that from them like they are the ruthless selfless selfish ones and she learns to be that way I mean like the idea of kind um me kind of jumping ahead like Mm -hmm. Glenn Close 
is off asking her to make a sacrifice that they wouldn't ever make for her in return and mm-hmm. she realizes that yes i mean i want to dig into their um into a couple of their intense scenes together in a, a bit further on but what do you, i want to get your thoughts on melanie's relationship with the humans specifically with helen yeah, they've got great chemistry between them. Clearly, it's like supposed to be a very like maternal bond, mm. um, and it's. I did think for a lot of the film that it was gonna gear us up for a betrayal, which never came, which is quite nice. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, there was. Um, it's the, the kind of heart of the film, and I think if you believe in that relationship. And that kind of relationship is what remains at the end of it all. Then you're avoiding this kind of like grubby nihilism that something like The Walking Dead um, always falls back into. Mm-hmm. And let's then dig into the relationship with um, with Caroline, who's Glenn Close's mm-hmm. character, um, or Dr. Caldwell. Maybe that's probably what she would have wanted to be referred as. Um, what do you, I thought I think I must I should probably preface this by saying that when I first saw this film when it came out, I was probably not as into it. And now that I think back on it, based on what you were talking about earlier, I think it was probably zombie fatigue. Like I was just yeah. done. I was done with the monsters, but. When I rewatch it today, I found Glenn Close's performance and character so interesting. I wanted to kind of hear what you make of her as probably actually the the real the real monster of the film. Yeah, in many respects. I <laughs> I do find myself watching this film because I think it's quite evident when you see it that like they ran out of money. Uh, because of the number of times that they reuse sets and stuff and I was watching it you know uh, just before this podcast um, and thinking like I wonder if all of this money was spent on Glenn Close um, getting her to be in this film and was that money well spent and I think it really was because a lot of the best kind of beats Mm. of this film are all with Glenn Close I mean I think the scene where she um, is with the zombie pushing a pram is, mm-hmm. you know, phenomenal. She delivers some like unbelievable dialogue. Um, and where Paddy Considine doesn't have as interesting a role to play in many respects, like all of that complexity is in Glenn Close's character. And even though she's somebody, the character is very, very like sure of themselves and has very like, you know, certain of their convictions and this is the plan and this is what we have to do like it's never dull because she plays it all with like such intelligence Mm. I love Glenn Close I'm very happy you when you mentioned that was that money well spent on Glenn Close I I, like my heart was in my chest like thinking oh my god if Layla hates (laughs) Glenn Close on this film I might actually cry (laughs) I I love her. I love her in everything she does, to be honest. I think she's probably one of my favorite actors. But I you're right, there's there's such depth but also commitment 
to all of the over the topness of the film and over the topness yeah. of her character as kind of this hard edged military scientist. And yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts, especially on the scenes with Caroline and Melanie. And I think to go back to your earlier point about the performance by um by Senya Nanua is to hold her own against Glenn fucking Close. Yeah. With dialogue that includes words like babies can't eat people. I mean gorgeous work. Yeah, no, she she I'm actually like slightly sad that we haven't seen a huge amount more from her ever mm. since. Um I, I just think she's really extraordinary. And like not to kind of also back continue bashing Bly Manor, but mm. I did think it was amazing how much more I loved these zombie kids than those kids who I could not care if they lived or died. <laughs> I mean, yes, we've discussed this separately, but yes, Miles can go can go to hell. I I actively wanted that kid to die. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I mean, there is a reason that like hardly any horror films, basically none, mm. uh, have the monster as the protagonist because you know why? Because you kind of can't sympathize with them, you kind of can't uh, you can't get on board with everything that they're doing, and it's mm. um, isn't as interesting. The only I was thinking about this, like what you know, how many are there? And there's this, there's um, under the skin, obviously, which is probably the best example of all of these there's um bright burn warm bodies maniac henry portrait of a serial killer american psycho and then a very weird film about conjoined twins called basket case and i've really scrolled that i've i've been on reddit i've been trying to find out i'm pretty sure it's just those eight ever that have the monster as a protagonist yeah absolutely not what about mm. Trouble Every Day, which we spoke about on this podcast? She's not the protagonist. Vincent Gallo is the protagonist. This is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to The Girl With All The Gifts. But um, I just feel like we're going to spend years debating about the fact <laughs> that Beatrice Dalle was not the protagonist of Trouble Every Day. I still disagree with that. I think she was. is. She is in my book. And I might... You can't have a protagonist that dies and then the film goes on for half an hour. <laughs> but also, yes, you can. Okay. We've got Psycho. <laughs> Psycho proved that. Yeah, that is. What, going back to The Girl with All the Gifts, mm-hmm. you were talking about the fact that there's very few films, horror films, that have a monster as a protagonist who is starts off as being a monster and then lives at the end of the film how do you think then melanie works to update this our idea of what a monster can do within a film well that's what i think is like most interesting about this film and it kind of brings in like that i think it's melanie's character starts to represent something like very political mm-hmm. um where um, it sort of looks for the beginning of the film because they have so many references to Pandora's box that that's mm-hmm. going to be like the allegory that we're looking at. But really, I kind of took this to be um, like something that I, as a youngish person, experience all the time mm-hmm. where you feel that like 
culturally within my generation, mm-hmm. we're at a certain place when it comes to women's rights, to mm-hmm. racial equality, to gay rights, to trans rights, to immigration, all of these like progressive issues. And you do have this older generation, which just feels like they're holding everything back. And, you know, I'm not wishing, you know, older people dead or anything like that. But I, you know, there is kind of this like frustration of like, why should we all be held back waiting because you guys kind of can't get on board with the new way that the world should work. Mm. And that's what it really spoke to me in this film. And that's kind of what I took Melanie's uh, character to really represent. That's really interesting. You've mentioned kind of the, the, the Pandora's box myth, which they reference, And there's a couple of scenes, both at the beginning and, and kind of towards the end as well, where she they're being read the the myths, the Greek myths. Yeah. How do you think those stories play, and especially Melanie's desire for stories, for storytelling, plays into the film? Um, yeah, I think it was, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, what they did in that um, non-horror film, uh, Never Let Me Go, where there is this kind of idea that there's like something particularly human when it comes to storytelling mm-hmm. and, um, you know, like creative endeavors. So I felt this was the whole thing of like them loving stories. And at one point she creates a story. It's all just kind of mm-hmm. another way of like humanizing her and having like yeah. some complexity because otherwise I think you could kind of look at it and like, oh, this is a monster who's learned how to conceal themselves very mm-hmm. well because they are so intelligent. And like by kind of having her into stories in that way, we kind of know that something else is also going on. But yeah, I did find it a bit odd that they did um, Pandora's box because that kind of doesn't fit. <laughs> like sure, she does unleash something, but like Pandora's box was more about like, unleashing sin and then you also have like hope get out there as well and that's Mm -hmm. not really what this builds to at all yeah what do you think it does build to like if we're we're using the the allegory of pandora's box here in the way that the film does um yeah i think it just kind of um builds to more kind of something about like the next stage of evolution the kind of you know of not being like held back by what other people define humanity to be mm-hmm. um and it's like the ending that i am legend uh has in the books mm-hmm. whether you read it with pictures or not <laughs> <laughs> um and um and and apparently the will smith version film of it was going to have that ending but test audiences hated it so much that they went back and changed it but i think it's a much braver ending it's a much more interesting ending oh for sure like we've spoken about Melanie's relationship with uh, with the sort of military environment that she's brought up in, um, mm-hmm. but I find it really interesting once we're taken out of that, and she's allowed to, for the first time in her in her life, to kind of explore a little bit, and she stumbles mm-hmm. onto these feral kids who are just like her, kind of second generation hungries, which I a sentence. Um, <laughs> So what do you think about the way that she, once she's now, as you mentioned, on her journey of becoming more, more selfish is an ugly word in many ways, but I think I use it positively here as in like she is learning to think of herself first 
and not as someone who needs to sacrifice herself for the needs of others, especially of the people who are controlling her and imprisoning her. Um, what do you think of what do you think of this this scene and the way they evolve with the with the feral zombie kids? Yeah, I mean, it was. I think it kind of helped us to kind of understand exactly what we were talking about because there was like a human there was a humanity outside of her. And then you're slightly more able to position what exactly Melanie is because she sort of immediately becomes their alpha. Mm-hmm. And, but these, they are the same as her. Also, I, I have to say, I do love the incredibly grotesque backstory as to how these children came into existence. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I, I was not expecting it, I have to say. I completely had forgotten that moment. That's what I was referencing before, the baby scantied people. Yeah. G- Who knew? <laughs> Let's just you were making a great point, but I almost want to take a little detour and talk about that scene <laughs> again. Yeah. Because it, the idea is so grotesque. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, in this film, the reason that there are these uh, kind of hybrid human hungry zombie children is because their mothers were infected by this fungal spore whilst they were pregnant with them, and then the babies ate their way out. That, yeah. that, that's a direct quote from the film. They ate their way mm-hmm. out. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, which also, I think if you have ever been pregnant, feels very, like, possible somehow. Oh, my God. Um, I did know... <laughs> I did know this is like actually a real life story that is almost as horrifying as um, what happens in this film. I knew a woman who uh, was like pregnant for like a couple of weeks past her due date, like very overdue. And she said that towards the end, she could feel the baby's fingernails clawing on the inside of her uterus. (laughs) No. I know. Why would you? (laughs) And now... I, I've been pregnant twice and that never happened to me, but I'm honestly never going to be pregnant ever again, just in case. <laughs> I hope you heard that story after both of your pregnancies. Yeah, thank okay, God. Thank fuck. Oh my God. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for that Yeah, because image. No, but it's true. Pregnancy mm. is horrifying. It's why there's so many great horror films about it. Like, because babies' fingernails continue to grow in the womb, they, like, are born with quite long fingernails. So if they're massively overdue, you've got some long... Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> are you <laughs> kidding? Babies grow... Yeah. I, I mean, I have, I have no idea about babies. They grow fingernails in the womb. <laughs> yeah. That seems just mean. Yeah. Anyway, I've only heard about this. This one woman is the only person I know that I've heard about that she, her baby was clawing at the inside of her uterus, but she swore blind that this happened to her. This is so, this is so upsetting. Anyway, I wonder whether that's where the premise of this entire film came from. Do you know what I would this like to know? This woman met this writer and told him too. I would like to know because that image will never leave my brain now. Yeah, I am not even pregnant and I swear that I can feel it because the image (laughs) is so strong. (laughs) Fucking hell. We we had digressed from the feral kids to talk about the way they were birthed, sort of. Um, But what do you think about... um, what do you think about the to go back to them 
what do you make of the of her relationship with the feral hungries yeah i immediately quite liked the little feral hungries i felt bad for them that they were kind of uh, you know on their own and they but they seemed to have um developed some pretty solid like tactics when it came to hunting that mm-hmm. i was impressed by and um there's a scene where they um attack a soldier called kieran that really reminded me of this thing that um vince gilligan once said where he's the guy who created um that show breaking, breaking bad, bad. Mm-hmm. and uh you know obviously that's a show filled with like loads of anti-heroes and uh they said to him in some interview that i read like oh how is it that you make these guys so um likable and that people continue to co- care about them and he said you just make them really good at their jobs and people will automatically like them and i really thought about that in the scene where all of those feral children um eat kieran mm-hmm because he's very bad at his job and they're doing fantastic work. So I was <laughs> on their side. <laughs> like, you're a soldier. You should be a better at this. I mean, actually, a lot of the military work in this film was pretty unimpressive. <laughs> Do go like, on. That base seemed very poorly designed, given that there were hordes of zombies on the loose. Uh, they didn't seem to have, like, a sort of red alert plan at all. Like they, you know, it was like it had never occurred to them that they're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, that zombies could come. <laughs> and I could not understand why they kept needing to stop for food. Because you can go, if you have water, you can go for like 24 hours without eating and you will be fine. But like every like 10 minutes, these guys were like desperately trying to hunt to get food. They should have put you in charge. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've read that fantastic book by um, Mel Brooks's son, Max Brooks, about yeah. the, have you seen the zombie survival guide? So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to start wrapping up our conversation, uh, I, I really want to hear your thoughts about the ending of the film. Mm. The ending is great. I thought that image that they had, it almost was like slightly Geiger-esque, all growing out of the people into this like monstrous tower. Yes. was just so good yes maybe as well as getting glenn close that also took up a lot of the budget <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i thought it was great it was a lot it, i didn't see it coming despite actually watching it the second time mm-hmm. that they do kind of forecast that that is where it's all gonna go but um uh, yeah i thought it was um it was a really like powerful ending that kind of reframed everything that i that had um come before to make mm-hmm. this like really like interesting political film and what do you think it's interesting kind of to to think about this ending again in the context of what you just mentioned about your political read of the film mm-hmm. of kind of now the the cage is literally the other way around so helen is now the only one being preserved in the cage uh in order to teach the kids but it's it's the kid's world. She's the one who doesn't fit into it. Yeah, which which kind of isn't a massive change for her because mm. she was so kind of restricted and imprisoned within that military base beforehand that, like, Witty, she does not seem devastated by this outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, maybe that is kind of something about 
like you do have older progressives in this world where their like frame of mind is like that their political position in the world and that everything that they need to do it's all about like facilitating a better world for the people that come after them Mm -hmm. and I think that's what Helen represents that's really interesting um did you have the same read? Did you feel that it was like all very political or am I just kind of projecting onto it? No, I absolutely thought it was political. I definitely didn't think of it like that, but I can completely see your reading of it. I'm unsure of what I think about the way that it ends in terms of the power structures. Because mm-hmm. I think there's something really interesting about um, Melanie being the one sort of commanding but not controlling the kids yeah the other kids and the fact that she is the enforcer now but also is protective and supportive of of helen and sort of wants to in the same way as you were talking about before she's quite selfless in a way that she wants to spread the learning like she wants others to be just as smart and as capable as she is but I do, I do kind of wonder about Helen. Like, is she just sacrificing herself for this? Is she going to live in that glass box, or is there a world that we can imagine where these uh, zombie kids can coexist with humans without eating them? Because that, I think, is where no, kind I of it's going. No, I think it's all over. Like, I think that they, I mean, like, they, like, and actually, that's something that's kind of quite nice to see. Like, a film that's just like a hundred percent. There's not going to be a sequel. <laughs> We have done the full apocalypse. All the humans are zombies now. Like, it's done. Yeah. Helen um, is the last one. Yeah. And, but then also, you know, it kind of, it had like moments of almost like they're kind of creating a utopia at the end mm. because none of those children are trying to get at Helen. Like, none of them are trying to like break in mm. and like eat her at all. Like, they are actually like fully human well not fully human but they are like fully um sentient beings who are Mm -hmm. able to um not just kind of go on their id and uh like zombies do yeah they're the next stage of evolution basically yeah but um i do almost kind of want to i mean this is not where the film is leading us but as we're we're you were bringing up i am legend and thinking kind of of what would a potential sequel for this look like I mean, Helen is in for a fucked up life. Like the rest of her life is going to be. But I it am was the... fucked up before. I mean, like, did it get worse? Not really. True, but now she is arguably, presumably, the last sort of fully non-zombified human being mm-hmm. in a world completely, completely dominated and kind of by a, a, essentially a new type of human. So she's she's done. Like she's the last of her kind. What's she gonna do? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's not ideal, um, <laughs> and it does you know really reaffirm the idea that if there is a zombie apocalypse, that you really want to die in the first wave because anything <laughs> past that is just horrific. It didn't do that well when it came out. I think um, not that many people saw it. The critically, um, it got a good response, but I do think mm. that. There was a lot of zombie fatigue at the time, just as there had been vampire fatigue about five years previously. And do you think it's a film that's worth revisiting or discovering by people who might not have seen it at the time? Yeah, I do. Um, it's 
it's it's got a lot about it and it's a very interesting and well-performed film once you start seeing the small budget it is a little bit difficult to unsee like the number of times they reuse sets is a little cringe at times but um some great work surprisingly paddy considine isn't that great but the rest of them um are, are, are doing a fantastic job of you know this kind of trio of glenn close Gemma artisan and uh senia are all are all you know doing very complicated things mm-hmm. and and they have a wonderful chemistry between them so i think that's worth seeking out as well because a lot of the time in um especially kind of anything that's like on the actiony side of horror like women don't get that much to do that's a wonderful way to wrap up i think so Layla, thank you so much again for your time and your insight and for your uh challenging canon of monsters on screen we're gonna we're gonna have to keep debating this yeah no i i, I will die on that vincent <laughs> Because it's, and I will die on it because it's unnecessary. They, he, you know. That is not a hill worth dying on. Yeah, well, you know, he is the worst. <laughs> Nothing with the words Vincent Gallo is a hill worth dying on. That's true. Thankfully, he has <laughs> faded into obscurity. <laughs> cropping up only every now and again to say about, talk about how much he loves Trump. Let's end on a high note. And... <laughs> Can you tell people where they can find more of your work online? Uh, yeah, I've been with Little White Lies this month. So if you um, check it out online or in the next print edition, I am in there a ton. Um, also got some fun stuff coming up with Sight and Sound and The Guardian. So yeah, just keep an eye out for me. I'm on Twitter at Layla Latif. Uh, and I post everything shamelessly on my Twitter feed. So uh, you'll be able to see anything that I get up to. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more about what we do on the Final Girls UK and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Final Girls UK. You can also follow Layla on Twitter at Layla Latif, and I am at Annabie Demented. Thank you for listening, and next week we'll be joined by Mary Beth McAndrews to dive into one of my favorite cinematic cannibal films, Raw.